Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. Ken also has owned his own construction company for over 30 years. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is here weekends at this time answering the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. If you'd like to join us, you can always reach Ken at 1-800-614-2975. That's 1-800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Dot com. Along with Ken, I'm Jim Britton. Thanks for making us part of your weekend plans. We're going to start this hour, Ken, by talking about one of those quintessential decisions that a lot of homeowners have to face, particularly when it comes to bigger ticket items. Do we fix it or do we simply go buy a new one? And that's a question we deal with on a regular basis, whether it's regarding a lawnmower, our automobile, and you don't think about it, but yes, even our home. Our home is filled with appliances and electronic and electrical devices that require periodic maintenance, and at some point, they just wear out. In addition to those items that are mechanical in nature, we also have other elements to our house, whether it be our shingles, the siding, our doors, windows, that at some point, you may say, do I really need to deal with this right now, or can I get by for another five or six years, and which way should I go? Do I repair it? Do I replace it? Let's talk about some of those items that are non-mechanical in nature. We'll use roofing as an example, because all over this country, over this, this past number of months, we've had huge issues from coast to coast when it comes to weather. Rain, snow in certain parts of the country in the winter, ice during the winter. And we look at high winds and rain. We're not talking tornadoes, but we're talking things that can damage our homes. And in the first place, when we look at roofing materials, whether you're dealing with a metal roof, you have shingles, you may have clay tiles, it really doesn't matter what it is. It's non-mechanical, and it just sits there for X number of years and performs. In most cases, the least life that you should anticipate from roofing would be at least 20 years. And that's with some of the older fiberglass shingles that were on the market years ago. Today, most shingle roofing is 25, 30, 35 years. Tile roof and concrete tiles, as well as clay, can be as much as 50 years. Metal roof, as much as 50 years. So some of these have a lot of life expectancy in them based on normal performance and normal wear. If you happen to have a shingle roof that has been damaged, and that roof is 18 20 years old, I want to tell you in most cases, unless it's a brand new roof, you're near the end of that life expectancy. This is a good time to be examining the roof and decide, do I need to go ahead and replace it or just bring the roofer out to replace miscellaneous shingles all the way around? You may find there's a little false economy in just making those quick repairs. If it's in your budget to go ahead and put a new roof on that house, get three bids at least and then go out and make a decision and have it repaired properly so you don't have big water issues later on. When we deal with items that are maybe a little less predictable, let's say some of the electrical items that we have in our home, let's look at air conditioning and heating. We'll use a central system, for example. The anticipated life cycle of that equipment is going to be 12 to 18 years in most cases. Older equipment was put in, let's say, 10, 11, 12 years ago. You're at the end of that right now. Products that have been manufactured just in the last three to five years That life expectancy moved up some, probably in the range of 14 to 18 to 19 years. But there's a big item that I think we need to consider. 
even if you don't have a major mechanical problem with your heating and cooling system today, but it is 12, 13, 14 years old, you may want to look seriously at replacing it at your convenience rather than having an emergency situation with no heating or cooling. And if nothing else, go into the marketplace, do what I just stated, get at least three bids, interview different contractors, have them bring to you cut sheets, literature, marketing data on what's available today, and then look at the energy efficiency. A unit that's 12, 14, 15 years old probably has a SEER rating, which is an energy efficiency rating of only 10, maybe a little less in some parts of the country. Today we're dealing with, as a standard, 13, 14, 15. The higher that number is, the less cost to you to operate each month and the less noise these units make, both inside and out. So if you're near the end of the life cycle of equipment, rather than paying a premium to have it done when you need it, now might be a good time to take some of those bids. And even if you think, maybe I'm a year off on this, if the unit will last another year, go ahead and set aside a little money and be prepared to spend these few thousand dollars. You're going to find that you get a pretty decent payback on today's modern equipment. And for those of you that are going green and thinking about it, Linux and a few others, but Linux especially, has just reduced or introduced, I should say, one of the first solar-powered heating and cooling systems for your home. So it's something else for you to think about. And if you're dealing with other items, you're looking at hot water heaters, this is an area that you may find, unless it's an extremely old electric unit, I would say let it go until it stops. Now, I gave someone that answer on the show here a few weeks ago, and I think she was a little surprised because hot water heaters are readily available. You're not typically going to buy one in a panic situation. And unless you're having issues with it, it just sits there and produces hot water on a regular basis. The main thing that has changed in hot water heaters in recent years for energy efficiency is the thermal value, the insulation around the hot water heater. The elements still consume energy. So if you have one that's old, you may want to think about putting an energy blanket on that, which will reduce the operating cost of it some. But I don't see any reason to rush out and replace it right now. So this gives you some idea of things around our home, when you might want to repair it, when not to. In one good rule of thumb, I think we've had in the industry for a long period of time, if you are having constant problems with something that maybe is not at the end of the life cycle, you just happen to have a lemon of an air conditioning system, and it's seven years old and you're constantly pouring money into it, if you reach a situation, folks, where you're finding that it's going to cost you 50, 60 percent or so of a replacement cost, I'd be biting the bullet and just putting something new in, especially if it's a nuisance to me on a regular basis. Well, yeah, and then there's a couple other points. We have become, in so many ways, a disposable society. Uh, there's a particular tr- craft or trade that's gone now, TV repairman. You don't get your TV. They are not there. No, uh, you get you get rid of them. You get a new one. Same thing with a lot of electronic equipments. But when it comes to home appliances, there still is that issue. So let me ask you a quick question here in the moments we have left, and that is whenever you buy a new appliance, you're offered an extended warranty. Is that a good buy? Is that a good value? And now you do have these warranties. You've got to keep that paperwork because sometimes you may have something that malfunctions or just craps out well within the warranty period, and they'll give you a brand new one. First, always keep the paperwork as you talk about. You're going to find information regarding the warranties buried sometimes in a little paragraph in there. But when it comes to maintenance on those items, uh, first, there are people that still maintain those in home appliances, refrigerators, ranges. Yes, in many cases, especially if they're fairly new, it's a lot more economical to have them repaired and components are readily available. As far as those extended warranties go, 
Typically, if you're going to have a problem with a new appliance, it's going to occur within the manufacturer's one-year warranty period. I only recommend the extended warranties if you have a very complex unit with a lot of sophisticated computer controls. The more complex they are, the greater potential of having something expensive go wrong. All right. There you go. That's the advice from Ken Patterson. Ken, the contractor, don't forget, if you want to reach Ken, you can always reach him at this number, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Coming up at this hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor with Ken Patterson, in about a half hour, we'll bring you our app of the week. It deals with gardening once again this week. And coming up at the bottom of the hour in our Universal Living segment, Ken's going to talk about different types of faucets that can just make your life a little bit easier. That's all coming up this hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, at 800-614-2975, or you can email your question to Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And we're trying to keep up the pace with all of the emails that we get. If you don't hear your email answered on the air, it will be answered through our website, KenTheContractor.com. But, Ken, I know you do, uh, working with our mailbag editor, Aaron Yoder, try to go through and pull out some of the ones that are a little more interesting. We try to bring those to the radio each week. Well, those that I think are interesting and also those that I think others may share a common interest in, and that's comes to us today, or this one comes to us from Michelle out of York, Pennsylvania. And Michelle, it looks like, is getting prepared for maybe an ugly winter this year. She says, two years ago, our neighbor's water pipe froze at a point out in their yard. They went through an awful time getting it fixed. Our pipes aren't buried any deeper than theirs, so why didn't we have a problem, too? Short of digging up the pipe and setting it deeper, is there any other precaution we can take? She goes on, I think she's giving us something to look forward to, or maybe not. I've got a feeling this winter is going to be nasty. So now it really is the time for you to be thinking about this, Michelle. Not when there's two feet of snow on the ground and the ground's frozen down 30 inches deep and your pipes are frozen. So I'm glad you wrote us with this one. First off, to deal with your questions, the soil conditions by itself may have something to do with why your neighbor's pipe froze and yours did not. Perhaps they had did not have compacted ground around it. It allowed moisture to seep in easier around their pipes and to freeze that. It's difficult to tell. Also, the type of piping that they use versus what you have may have made a little bit of difference. We can't always assume just because our pipes are buried the same depth that and we have a problem or our neighbor has a problem and we don't, that it has to do with the depth. Soil conditions are important. The amount of moisture, the type of soil that surrounds the pipe can also be a factor in whether they freeze or not. But the fact that you're thinking about this, I want to tell you what you can do. First off, you say they're not buried very deep is the way I, uh, the implication that I get out of your email. You may want to go out during these warmer months and excavate down to those pipes and see what's around that. See whether the pipe's actually holding water. If you've had a lot of rain like so many other people have, if you're holding water around that pipe right now, if you've got a clay area around it and maybe some fine sand that it was backfilled with, that may tell you that you have the potential of having some frozen pipes sooner or later if not last year or two years ago, maybe this winter. Now, if you do, a couple of options. One, and you're not going to like this, but if you don't want to bury them any deeper, you may want to just go ahead and excavate the entire water line and properly insulate it with an exterior underground pipe insulation. 
This material is used on everything from steam pipes to water lines on commercial as well as residential properties. It's most common in the commercial and industrial world. But there's pipe insulation made that would solve your problem and prevent you from having to excavate any deeper. In some cases, you can't, perhaps, because of rock strata. So that's one option. If the length of your water line is not so great, you may find that it's easy enough for you to connect a pipe heater to that that will heat underground lines. There are also pipe heaters that allow you to run a warming line, and I'll use that term loosely, inside the pipe itself. And it actually heats the pipe from the inside. It does not impact or contaminate the water that comes through. There are systems on the market. You can find those online and through most of your plumbing wholesale houses in your region that will prevent that water line from freezing. So you've got several options, some involving a lot of excavation, some involving a little more expense for a water heater. And the other option is do nothing and take your chances again. At either rate, good luck to you, and hopefully you'll come up with a resolution that works for your pocketbook and for your environment. You're listening to Ken the Contractor with Ken Patterson. We're here weekends at this time. You can reach us a couple different ways, either 800-614-2975. You can always reach Ken at that number or emails at kenthecontractor.com. And uh, let's go inside now uh, with an email uh, from one of our listeners who wants to do some work in a bathroom. Yeah, and Janice sends this one to us. Apparently, they're doing a little retrofit, but they were prepared for part of this when they built the house. Said, we built our house. We had a tub roughed in, 60 by 32. We did not install the tub, but did go ahead and sheetrock those walls. If we remove the sheetrock from the walls where the shower base will sit, can we tilt and lower a shower base in place without removing additional sheetrock from the rest of the walls? Well, Jan, it's not uncommon for folks, especially in a basement area, but in parts of their home, to prepare for a future build-out. And in this case, I think you have done that. Now is the time, apparently, for you to come back and to go ahead and complete the bathroom. Perhaps this has been a storage area or some other workspace for you in the interim. What I would suggest before you buy the shower base itself, and first off, you say shower base, so you have to be talking at least a two-part or a multiple-part unit, and that's what I'd recommend on a retrofit like this because you're going to be hard-pressed to get a tub-shower combination through the doors within the house and set it inside. Those are typically installed in new construction uh, as you're in the framing stage. But assuming you're dealing with a two-part unit, I would suggest you take and establish or create a template to check this before you go by the base. You could end up with an inexpensive piece of Luan plywood and then build up on the sides or even styrofoam, anything along those lines that would be rigid, and then build the base up on the sides to be the thickness of your shower base. So if you've got a 4-inch shower base and this pre-molded floor, you want to take some styrofoam and tape around the edges so it really mimics the shower pan. If you can get that in, then you have sufficient space. It should be fairly easy if you can slide it straight in to the opening, meaning there's no obstruction. There's not a vanity or another wall that would prevent you from putting this on the floor and sliding it straight into the opening. That's going to be your easiest way to approach this. But I found this question to be a little interesting because people don't often think about how they can tilt and get something in a hole, even though it measures the same overall length. Because when you're tilting this shower pan in place, it's going to take up more room on the diagonal as you drop it in there. So build you a template first. Again, foam board may be the most economical, easiest way to go, or apply foam to a Luan sheet. If it fits, sliding it straight in, you're great. You have no issue with buying that shower pan and then buying your preformed walls to stand up around it and create your shower environment. If it does not fit, 
then you're going to have to look at removing the balance of the sheetrock that you're talking about. Now, I also want to caution you, typically we do not install showers or even surrounds in our tubs over ordinary sheetrock. So when you did this years ago, if you were using the same sheetrock that's in your bedroom, your living room, I'm going to suggest to you, and you won't like this, that you're going to have to take it off in the first place. That drywall needs to be a moisture-resistant board. Most of us refer to it as a green board or a blue board because that's a sign. That's the way the manufacturer colors it to indicate that it's a moisture-resistant board. In the best world, best application, you want to use a cement fiber board behind those walls. And uh, But anyway, if you need to take it off, go ahead and do so. Hopefully, you should not have to remove the framing. But check this first. You'll save yourself a lot of grief going forward. It's interesting. uh, The issue they're trying to deal with is you'll see a lot of folks, when they do make changes in the bathroom, they're trying to alter a shower situation, take it from a shower or a tub back to a shower, a lot of different things. And there are different ways that you can work around that space. There are, and there are products in the market today that we didn't have even 10 years ago that make it so easy. You noticed I referred to components, not a single unit. It's going to be very difficult to get a pre-molded unit in. But the bases come separate today, Whether you, especially when you're dealing with a shower. On tubs, they have retrofit tubs that would fit the opening, and then the shower surrounds that fit over the tub to create that watertight seal so that you can still have the shower overhead. A lot of options to retrofit and go either direction. In most cases... We see folks getting rid of the tubs and bringing the showers. You see that if you've done any traveling recently, uh, tubs are just disappearing from hotels. They're not only disappearing from hotels, but they're disappearing from our homes for the most part. We're seeing showers become just such commonplace. Many homes won't have a tub at all in a second bathroom, maybe in the master, and that's it. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here every weekend answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Along with Ken Patterson and Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. If you've got a question and you'd like to join us, the number to dial is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email us at kenthecontractor.com. And while you're there, you'll find a bunch of very, very helpful information, including Universal Living. We like to bring you updates on Universal Living, which makes all of our lives a little bit easier as we continue to get just a little bit older each and every day. And this weekend, we're going to deal with something that is a a basic element to almost everyone's home, and they are the different types of faucets you can look to put in your home. You know, the traditional faucet that most of us grew up with had some type of a a multi-angled handle on it to turn the hot water off, a separate one to turn the cold water off as well, and then maybe a different diverter valve, several different valves and devices on there. And no one thought about years ago how to access that or how difficult it might be for one, people with physical disabilities, and two, for those of us as we get older. And what's happening today is those of us that invented those things years ago find that we're a little bit older today. They're not as easy to operate as they were 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So we're finding ways to invent new items that make it what we're calling and what the industry's calling it now universal living. It is something that functions much easier for absolutely everybody, regardless of your age or any disabilities that you may have. And when it comes to faucets, not only on our lavatories, our kitchen sinks, but also our showers, we're finding so many things available out there today that they're extremely easy to operate and they allow everybody to use it properly. One thing I want you to think about, if you're in need of replacing any of those devices on the plumbing fixtures we just mentioned, you want to think about going to a single lever handle. Now, this is a lever many of us are familiar with. 
that we can end up moving left or right. It's one lever for hot, cold water for the balance as well. It's very easy to turn off and on. You can even do it with your arm, with your wrist. You don't have to grab it with your fingers. And these hold true also for your showers as well as for the tub. Now, if you're saying, I really don't like that style, then think a little bit about what some will call and some manufacturers do a paddle handle. This has been common in the medical industry in medical buildings for many years that allows them also, you and them, to turn them off and on with arms, elbows, whatever. So just think about how you can make things a little easier for you and others others in your household if you need to replace or if you're building new. I'll tell you how people could make my life a little easier, and really that's what it all comes down to for me. When you check into a hotel, just tell me how to turn the hot water on and off in the shower or to turn the shower on. It can be a little complicated these days, I agree. Do you push, pull, turn? What do you do? What do you do? Please, just make that as easy as possible for me. We'll work on that in another show. All right. Let's go to the phones right now. Again, our contact number is 800-614-2975 if you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, and Dan does. He joins us right now. Hi, Dan. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Yeah, thank you, Ken. Uh, I have an unfinished base, not, excuse me, uh, an unconditioned basement. Okay. Uh, and it's, you know, like, uh, one third of the square footage of the house. It's a full basement. Uh, now I have two, two questions really, uh, in, I guess they're seasonal. In, in the summer, it's cool. It's plenty cool, but it's not, it's getting mildew. Right. And mold. But it's, it, it, as far as being uh, cool, it's definitely cool down here. In the winter, it's not conditioned. Now, I have a heat pump. I have a dual system, I guess, a heat pump plus baseboard. Okay. Yep. So, now, to put some kind of conditioning down in the basement that's going to solve both a summer and a winter issue to where I can get heat down there plus not have, uh, you know, the, the humidity uh, problem down there in the summer, What's the best course of action that's in, somewhat inexpensive? Because uh, based on the market conditions right now, I'm upside down. I don't want to put a lot of money in it. Sure. Well, does your heat pump have any additional capacity in it? Meaning, is it a three-ton unit and your house only requires, let's say, two and a half tons? It was designed, perhaps, to take care of, of building out some portion of that basement at a later date? I'm not sure. That, that's something that we'll, we'll check out, though. Okay. A mechanical contractor could come take a look at that for you. They may give you some alternatives as well as pricing on this. They could determine what size of the unit uh, that you have now and whether it has any additional capacity for added space. In terms of taking care of both summer and winter, uh, some type of a forced air system. Again, you have a heat pump, so I'm going to suggest to you that that would be worth considering, and I would look first at added capacity of that unit. Part of the reason you have mold down there in the summertime, even though it's cool, is because you have no air circulation. Correct. And e- even if you had just fans moving that air, that's going to be a big plus. You also need to be able to discharge that air, I mean the moisture. An air conditioning unit pulls moisture out of the air in the summer months, which is the reason you have a condensate line and water dripping outside. Mm-hmm. So that, it's serving the purpose there. In the wintertime, of course, it would put heat back into that basement as well. So some type of a forced air system since you already have a ducted system and maybe some expansion of that system, not necessarily new, would be worth considering or taking a look at. Baseboard heat is, you're going to have two zones. You're going to have heat in the winter and you still have your air movement problem in the summertime. Yeah. So short of putting in a, an energy efficient, and they do exist, window unit, if you have an opening, a high window or someplace down there, you can install an Energy Star unit 
for that basement in the summer, that also would be perhaps an energy-efficient way of just removing that moisture from the basement and not having any mold and not having to spend several thousand dollars to upgrade or to replace your current system. Yeah, I don't want to put that kind of money. Sure, in. I understand. You could probably do that for a few hundred dollars and then have a, comfort, a comfortable feel of that basement space, whether it's a workshop or hobby area or whatever, in the summer months and get rid of the mold issue. And I think I'd look at that because, again, you have – uh, if you have baseboard heat or you have some of these, um, uh, I'll, I'll refer to them as oil circulating heaters that are portable as opposed to electric resistance heat, you could use that down there in the wintertime. So there are economical ways of creating some portable heating and cooling. But I'd first look at what I have in place. Does it have capacity to take care of my issue in my basement? Right. Without any charge, you should be able to contact, again, an HVAC contractor, ask them to look at your current system, make an assessment, and then make some recommendations for changes along with pricing to accommodate that. Okay. I also have a wood stove down there. Okay. So, which I haven't used because I haven't, you know, uh, I'm not living down there in the winter. This is, you know, I don't even use it's storage for most of all. Sure. And, uh, but I do have a wood, wood burning stove and I like the, the idea of a pellet stove that you mentioned earlier on your show. Well, pellet stoves have a tendency to be automatic. They, with a fuel source of supply, they'll automatically feed that to maintain a temperature. You don't have that with most wood stoves. And uh-huh. that's the issue. With a wood stove, you've got to work it. You've got to keep wood put right. in it. But with a pellet stove, if you have that option, you can fuel that, depending on the reservoir size, and maybe maintain a certain heat down there for days at a time without having to fuel it again. Well, wouldn't that, the fluid that's with the wood stove, wouldn't that be compatible putting a, a pellet stove in there? With more modern units, it can be. And notice I said it can be. You uh-huh. want to check with the manufacturer of the stove and see what they require and what they permit. Also, there's some limitations with certain stoves on the flue diameter and the length of that flue or the vent. So this is down to a science today. It's no longer just vent all of this because they're trying to maintain the maximum amount of heat from that particular fuel source at the same time reduce pollutants that end up in the air. And in doing that, again, there's just so much science in them that you are restricted with what you can and can't do. You've got to carefully follow manufacturer's recommendations. Okay. But that should be available even online for you. So take a look and do a little research, and I think you'll find you've got some options. All right, I appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Bye. Dan, thank you. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, if you do have a question for Ken the contractor, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. Jot it down and keep it handy. That's the contact number for Ken the contractor. Quick break and then right back with more. You're listening to Ken the contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to another edition of Ken the Contractor with Ken Patterson. Along with Ken Patterson, I'm Jim Britt. Our number, if you'd like to reach us, is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. we got our app of the week coming up in just a moment. But right now, time to go back to uh, one of the many emails we've received recently. And this one comes to us out of North Carolina. Yeah, this one comes to us from Melvin in Greensboro, North Carolina. Said, I listened to a window company interview on your website recently where you discussed triple pane insulated glass. It gets cold where I live in the winter. I'm shopping around for replacement windows, and some of the salespeople are trying to get me to purchase the triple glazed windows. Is this a good investment? Well, Melvin, if you heard the entire interview and some comments that I've made regarding double and triple pane glass in recent shows, 
What you know is that triple-pane glass is not always a good investment for every home. It depends on where you live. It depends on your winter environment. And while there are folks out there that would like to sell you more than you need, I'm glad that you raised the question. First off, you might want to use your local code officials as a source to help you where you are. Weather conditions, the climate, the hot, the cold, all of that varies so much from one part of our listing area to another. In the area you live in in North Carolina, I'm further north than you are, and I know our winters can be fairly cold, but in most cases, even where I live, it's not one that warrants the investment of the triple-pane windows. And I don't think that will be the case for you. But check with your local building code officials. See what the recommendation is for your area. Now, you have Greensboro, but you may well be in that market but live perhaps outside quite a bit up on a mountaintop. Anyway, I want you to check locally and see what their recommendations are. For me, and based on my experience, I don't think you need the triple pane. Typically, when you go to a triple pane, the jam becomes wider. That can also create additional modifications that are needed for retrofit windows. So it's not always as simple as just buying a window. You need to look at the big picture and see what else will be impacted by this particular new window unit. Talk to your window salespeople about this. Also, ask them for the differences, not only in the cost, but in the performance of the window, the R value, the U value, the air and water infiltration values on going from a double pane to a triple pane. Compare all of those and then look at any added expenses as a result of the retrofit or the modifications surrounding your windows, both inside and out. Once you've done that and you've checked with your local code officials, I think you can make an informed decision of which way to go. I won't be surprised if you don't stay with just the ordinary insulated double-pane glass and find that it works really well for your marketplace. Melvin, we do appreciate you, your question. Don't forget, forward those questions to our website, kenthecontractor.com, or give us a call at 800-614-2975. Time now for our App of the Week. These are things that Ken uncovers as he's out and about in his travels. And also, while he's working as both a consultant and also as a builder. And you've got one this week, uh, again, for our friends who spend some time gardening. Well, it's the warmer time of the year, and most of us, from you, me, others, at some point, we at least spend a little time around the outside of the house. And most of us also like to have a few plants handy. Now, they could be inside, they could be outside. So this app is one that will work for gardeners as well as those of us that are simply you know, keeping a few plants inside just to say, I can keep something green. This particular app is called My Garden Light. That's My Garden Light. Now, that's L-I-T-E. And what this does is allow you to take a trip, to take the day and not worry about, did I water the plants? Are they dying? Or do I need to fertilize them? Do I need to harvest a certain item today, next Tuesday, out of my garden? Because those of you that are gardeners understand that when beans, for example, start coming in, you got so many days and you need to get those off so that the next crop comes in. Peppers, tomatoes, they're always the same. Do we get caught up in our busy schedule? It's very difficult to keep up with these things. So this app allows you to deal with plants, to deal with gardens, to set timers to remind you based on every plant that you have inside or out as to when to water them and when to harvest certain items, perhaps even when to divide them if you're looking to move them into other planter beds. So it takes a lot of the guesswork out of that in-home gardening and planting. Again, it's called My Garden Light, and it's free. We've got time for one more mailbag of this segment, and we're going to West Virginia for this one. 
Here we are. This one comes to us from Lawrence. Lawrence says we've converted our old claw-legged bathtub into a shower with a kit. Didn't think about the ventilation issue, and now there's mold growing on the ceiling. Lawrence, doesn't sound good. What's the best and cheapest way to solve this? Is there an exhaust fan we could put in the existing window? Well, Lawrence, there are exhaust fans that are designed to go in window openings, and that may prevent you from using the window as it's designed to raise or lower or to open, depending on the type sash you have. What I would suggest you do is see how easy it would be for you to install a ceiling exhaust fan and have that vented to the exterior. Because one of the things that's creating this mold is that you have moisture, and it's trapped. You don't have air movement. And that's true of our basements, our bathrooms, any area where a lot of moisture is created. So you need to get that moisture out. And I don't want to see you put in a non-vented fan. These are charcoal-based fans that have been common for some period of time in apartments and other dwelling units. Those just don't function properly in my experience. So I want to see you put some type of a vented fan in. If you can in, put in a ceiling fan with a duct to the outside, get it vented to the exterior. You may go through the soffit, maybe through an exterior wall. I always caution people, try not to go through the roof, especially if you're doing it yourself, if you can avoid that. Nothing wrong with them, but anytime you put a penetration through the roof, at some point in the life of the house, you've got the potential for a leak. So I'd rather see you go through the soffit with the vent or the sidewall. That's going to resolve the issue as far as the moisture goes. As a last resort, if you can't do that, then your option of looking at a window vent will work for you, but be prepared to no longer have regular access for that window. That vent issue is so important when you're dealing uh, with moisture. And I know you had a stat on one of our earlier shows. Uh, when they go and find out the cause of many fires in homes, one of the leading causes of fires in homes are vents in bathrooms that, that either are not properly installed or not properly maintained. Two different types of vents that cause or, or at least help create these fires. One are our dryer vents, which we tend to forget about, but also bathroom ceiling fans because they may sit there for two, three, five, twenty years. As long as they operate, we turn them on. They do what they're supposed to do. In the meantime, folks, as they're pulling air up off the floor, they're also pulling dust, dirt, lint that collects on these motors, and in some cases they overheat and can cause a fire. So that is an area that from time to time we should pay a little attention to, pull that vent off, turn the power off, see if we don't need to clean some dust off that. Well, and you got to remember, what the reason is why you put it in there in the first place was to take that moisture out. And and, and I know what, one of the manufacturers uh, that you spend some time talking to are folks who manufacture painting products. And they've really gone after this issue of trying to put paint, particularly in certain areas above showers and other places, uh, that will be able to stand up to the conditions that you find in most bathrooms, which deals with a lot of that moisture, no matter how good your vent fan is. Well, unlike the earlier versions of basic latex or water-based paint, the new paints on the market today will deal with that moisture, but it repels it. It's not allowing it to soak in. It's not allowing it to streak the paint or the wall. But you still have the moisture. It has nothing to do with making it go away. So in every case, I'd like to see all of you have vented fans in your bathroom to get the moisture out. And, Lawrence, for you, that's going to help get rid of this mold and mildew problem you have. Lawrence, we hope that helps you out. Don't forget, if you've got a question about your home inside or out, and you'd like to get an answer from Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com or give us a call, 800-614-2975. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. And don't forget, whether you've got a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. 
Kentucky. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.